Faster Mai, good afternoon and welcome to Perspective on Manx Radio. The first episode since the new schedule came into effect, of course. Not much change for us, except Perspective will now be running for one hour instead of two from midday until one every Sunday. So welcome, I'm Dolan Mercer. Coming up on this week's edition... I come from Scotland, which is quite a high performer when it comes to climate change, but drills for oil and exports oil. Norway's the same, very good environmental performance, but floats on oil. Um, You can say that there's, there's a paradox in there, and I'm not denying it, but both of those actually in terms of the emissions that they report to the UN are performing very well. We hear more from the man tasked with hauling us towards carbon neutrality, Professor James Curran. And later... My name is uh, Miguel Cluzonagot. I'm the director of the Division of Ecological and Earth Sciences of UNESCO and the secretary of the Man and the Biosphere programme. We're going to hear from one of the top people at UNESCO's Man and the Biosphere programme. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. So first, a climate emergency was declared on the Isle of Man in May. In July, Professor James Curran was brought in to lead a team of around 20 working towards a climate change action plan for the island. They were set a six-month target to construct and present a report on the matter. Roughly halfway through that period, Alex Watton spoke to Professor Curran about the work he and his team are doing. Yeah, you're right. Uh, We're halfway through it. It's actually more than that in terms of the immediate workload. Um, Yeah, I was brought in uh, in July, first week in July, uh, and then we decided to try and take forward the, 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 the necessary technical work to underpin the, the climate change action plan with what we've called an analytical team brought from all the departments in government, uh, and we've also tried to uh, meet lots of people externally, and we've had a couple of public events and so on. That began to kick off round about the beginning of August. So how big's your team? It's 20, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so how long is that? August, September, and half of October. So two and a half months we've been working, and the analytical team, uh, which great people offered from all the government departments have put in a ton of work. So we're beginning to develop those technical reports and those I now need to to pull together into my kind of personal report that will draw on all of that evidential information and make the, uh, the recommendation on the action plan to the government. What is the daily technical work going on? Because we're told you know, over and over again, really, that things are going on behind the scenes and it's lots of hard work's going into yeah. it. But for somebody that's uh, doing living their lives as normal, told to ride their bike more often and eat less red meat, I mean, what, what, what work is going on that will directly impact them? OK, yeah, it's a, a good question, because I think uh, most of us who uh, keep up to date with things really know the kind of main elements of what is needed to address climate change or the, the climate change emergency. But underpinning that exactly how you bring about the necessary actions. Um, you, you can't necessarily learn that from other countries because every country is different. So there'll be different priorities and different timescales and different costs and different benefits here on the, the Isle of Man. So the, the, the work the analytical team is doing is really trying to dive down into the detail. Um, for example, uh, if we as we will have to move to alternative vehicles from fossil fuel uh, vehicles, then how do you introduce that? How do you persuade people to start using them? Uh, And what sort of infrastructure is needed? So where do you put the charging points? Many people might want them at home, but many people won't have the space or the opportunity to have a charging point for an electric vehicle at home. So where do they go? How do you fit them in? Uh, Should that be funded by the public or can you get a commercial operator to bring in and do that kind of work? Equally, uh, charging points for electric vehicles need to be connected to the electric grid. So is the electric grid there and available and is is it big enough and strong enough to charge up all these vehicles if everyone plugs them in at six o'clock in the evening uh, when they stop work. So it's that kind of level of detail. I mean, that is really quite demanding and technical. And I'm not saying we'll get every bit of it right. Of course we won't. But, you know, we, we, we need to look at that 
and look at the kind of costs and also what in new income streams there'll be because some, some of this can be done by commercial operators, some will inevitably fall to the public purse. So it's at that level of detail we need to bring all the evidence together in order that each of those elements of which there are 50 work streams at least, uh, feeding through to what is the eventual action plan. Well, touching on that example of electric vehicles then, uh, you mentioned the infrastructure bringing in. Of course, all of these things would be subject to Timwald approval. Now, we've heard in, in, in the chamber discussions around that before. Do you feel, as it stands, well supported by government here? All the experience I've had since I uh, began work on, on, on this project in July has been outstandingly positive yeah I, I and I keep asking uh, everyone I meet um, and the public events we've had and the stakeholder events uh, and people we've talked to individually to gather evidence uh, I have not yet detected any kind of adverse comment or, or any negativity um, well, what about the considerations government have said they are still open to in terms of extracting gas from Manx waters? Does, does that not sit at odds with the work you're doing? I can understand that that's quite a consideration for many people. Um, to my mind, it's a very political decision. Uh, you may think I'm trying to dodge the question, but in, in all honesty, it doesn't really fall within my remit. My remit is to... Uh, develop an action plan that would take the island to net zero uh, If this is even being discussed politically, surely the, the climate change chair has to be uh, somebody that is in conversations when that kind of decision making is going on. Well, if you let me explain, because the, the, the task I've been given, my remit if you like, is to develop an action plan to reach net zero in 2050. Uh, what does that mean? Net zero in those terms are the, based on the approved calculations by the UN, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and they're about territorial emissions. It's about the carbon emissions made by the Isle of Man. Now, you, I come from Scotland, which is quite a high performer when it comes to climate change, but drills for oil and exports oil. Norway's the same, very good in environmental performance but floats on oil. Um, you can say that there's, there's a paradox in there, and I'm not denying it, but both of those actually in terms of the emissions that they report to the UN are performing very well, because although they provide the oil and gas, they don't use it. It's the user takes responsibility for the emissions, So, which is why I say this ultimately becomes a political decision. For instance, the English Climate Change Action Plan relies quite heavily on continuing to use uh, natural gas because they intend to develop carbon capture and storage and the resulting carbon emissions from burning the gas they will then pump underground in all the depleted oil and gas fields they have in the North Sea off the east coast of, of England. Um, that is one of their technical routes to, to meet net zero. Carbon capture and storage I don't think will be available here on the Isle of Man and yet the same requirement will be expected in order to reach net zero of eliminating at some point over the next few decades all burning of fossil fuels. So it's within that kind of factual context that I can offer some input but I repeat to my mind the development of a gas field like that is ultimately a political decision and needs to be part of a political debate. Nevertheless, your team's looking at uh, gathering evidence to look at a sustainable future very broadly. Uh, does recommending uh, either extracting fuel or not extracting fuel, would that not be gathering evidence being useful? Uh, you might regard it as gathering evidence and being useful, but it honestly does not form part of my, my, my remit. Uh, so I, I've, I've probably said all I can on that issue. Well, moving on then slightly, uh, obviously we're halfway through, a team of, of about 20 people gathering evidence. How much are you spending? Uh, I don't know. 
there, there is a budget and the people that have formed the analytical team have been lent, if you like, by other government departments, so there's no budget associated with that. We, we have a small element of consultancy as backup, both to challenge our internal work and where we don't have the expertise, we'd sometimes put out to the consultancy a small amount of additional uh, evidence gathering and analysis to be done on our behalf, but that's relatively limited. It's a, a minority of the complete range of issues we're covering. So if you ask me for an exact figure, I'm sorry, I don't know. How much does what's going on in the UK at the moment play a part in uh, your evidence gathering or looking uh, to, I suppose, affect change? Because I mean, the, in the Environment Bill, for example, in the House of Commons is, is currently sort of going through. Uh, does, does that have an effect at all about the way you're working here? It, it has some effect. I think the, the greatest source of evidence on which we've drawn uh, significantly is the UK Climate Change Committee, which has commissioned and published a lot of really, really helpful studies, and we certainly draw on that. Scotland as well has done some very useful analysis, and the as I mentioned earlier, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is part of the UNFCCC, uh, they publish a lot of material as well. So yes, we, we, we look at all of this international work and national work as well, drawing on whatever we can in terms of that uh, context. But as I said earlier, everything needs to be customised to the ex exact situation here in the Isle of Man. How difficult is it to cut through the noise? There are so many reports and talks and just so much information out there. How do you find, how, as you say, narrow it down to what's relevant here? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting question and it exercises me a lot in thinking <laughs> how to present this action plan at the end of the day. Um, the, the kind of way I think of it is that I'm a great believer in formalised programme management and this will be if it's approved at the end of the day, a programme of actions that spans the whole of government, it spans the whole of civic society here on the Isle of Man, and it spans the next 30 years. So that's quite big in its extent uh, and it, in its potential impact. To me, that needs to be structured in the way that is a, a formalised programme of actions that is monitored and reported on and there are executive decisions associated with it. And I try to look at it, if if I was on what you might call the, the governing board of that programme, what what actions would I like to see in there that I'd like to know are being taken forward or are either on time or drifting off time? How do we intervene to correct it and so on? So it's at that level of detail that I'm trying to write my report. The, 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 the evidence that's gathered by the analytical team has been a lot, a, a lot more detailed level. But it's about trying to hit that right level, as you say, cuts through a lot of the, uh, the, the extremely dense material that some, can sometimes distract you from the main message and what do we really need to do uh, to meet these targets in the future. Um, that's a difficult balance. I'm not sure anybody's ever got it quite right and I'll probably end up not getting it right myself. Is six months enough time? Yeah, I don't, I don't think really in many ways having longer would produce a better product at this stage. Um, there will be future reviews of the action plan, I'm absolutely certain. Most countries that have a climate change action plan review it every five years because this one has been done in a very short period. You might want to have the first review a little earlier than that. But Action plans always need to be reviewed anyway because circumstances change, particularly technology develops so fast these days, uh, the costs and so on of technologies change, that it constantly has to be reviewed on a kind of three or five year cycle. So I'm quite comfortable that the, the action plan we'll come up with will be adequate to have a pretty good view, certainly over the first few years, maybe out to 10 years, Beyond that, technology might change so significantly that you need to update it anyway. Do you agree with government's current target for zero carbon emissions? The political commitment is to meet uh, net zero in 2050. The best science, uh, the, the UN science and the IPCC science, states that that is the target in order to uh, keep global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees centigrade, beyond which 
uh, all all the best scientists say it becomes dangerous. Um, so that's the best science. It's a very sound, well-evidenced, uh, science-based target. So I think that's a very good starting point. doesn't mean to say that if you progress well, uh, you can't meet that net zero some years earlier. But that's the best target we have that is based on good science. That was Professor James Curran there, Chair of Government's Climate Emergency Transformation Team, speaking to Alex Watton. Interestingly, the Isle of Man Green Party issued a statement in response to what it heard from Mr Curran. That statement, which was released on Friday, reads as follows. The scientist leading the government-sponsored climate change transformation team, Professor James Curran, has indicated in the Isle of Man media that the government's plans for hydraulic fracturing or fracking in the seabed is not a contradiction with its climate emergency resolution for net zero emissions by 2050. Professor Curran co-authored a 2014 report for the government in Scotland on developing the extraction of fossil fuels by fracking in Scotland. The government's proposal to license a private company to frack the Biosphere Island seabed will raise concerns of the risk of tremors that have been witnessed at the fracking sites in Lancashire and of damage to sea life. The proposal to frack would also mean that the government is knowingly giving away control of a gas field that will increase carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, increasing our own sea levels, risking our flood defences and increasing summer droughts. This clearly shows that government is not willing to invest in the renewable energy that our future generations need. Despite this, the government has continued to apply taxpayers' resources in preparing tenders for fiscal and technical matters relating to the fracking that will ultimately cost the taxpayer further in terms of climate mitigation. Whilst this has been going on, it's progressed its goal of building a further 5,100 houses on greenfield sites and will not put the climate change bill before Parliament until June 2020. The government should be complying with its resolution of a climate emergency and the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals by immediately reducing emissions and increasing renewable energy output in the Isle of Man. So, members of the Isle of Man Green Party are evidently not entirely happy about what they heard from Professor Curran. After the break, we'll hear from one of the top people at UNESCO's Man and the Biosphere programme. The Nation Station, Manx Radio. Fast am I, you're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. If you're just joining us, we heard the latest on government's efforts to go carbon neutral from the man tasked with coming up with an action plan. The island is a UNESCO Biosphere Reserve, of course, the only entire nation to be given that accreditation. Earlier this year, Aaron Ibanez caught up with one of the most senior minds at UNESCO's MAN and the Biosphere programme. My name is uh, Miguel Cluzenagot. I'm the director of the Division of Ecological and Earth Sciences of UNESCO and the secretary of the Man and the Biosphere program. Uh, this program on the Man and the Biosphere started in 1971, so almost 50 years ago. Um, I started with UNESCO some 30 years ago, so it was well, very well in swing. It had uh, big successes. Um, when I started, we had already some 400 biosphere reserves nominated. So uh, the program started long time ago as a pure conservation program. So a sort of other hat for protected areas. And throughout the years, it evolved from this concept to an integrated concept, or concept of integrated nature conservation and sustainable development. Very important were the Rio Conference on Environment and Development in 1992 that really made a change in the perception of how conservation should be done, not as an, an aim per se, but really bringing people or man and nature closer together. People are part of nature. They are not, there's not nature and us. We are, we are part of this. And uh, so the program started really to see how to have some tools and to implement these ideas. And one of these tools uh, is uh, the biosphere reserves that have uh, a core area, a protected area, um, protected by national law. 
not by any UN or UNESCO law because it doesn't exist. Um, then it was a surrounding buffer zone and with the surrounding transition or development area. And only this concept, this zonation concept, makes the bias reserve work. This means that there are no bias reserves where there are no people. It's really a concept with people and nature. Are we currently at a time where there is a greater responsibility um, for biosphere reserves, given a, a sort of heightened pressure in the natural world at the moment that we're experiencing? Well, we experience we experience a lot of changes in the world. You heard certainly a lot about climate change, about biodiversity loss, species loss. We had recently in UNESCO the seventh IPBS meeting, this uh, International Platform for Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, and uh, they make a report, a big report on the status of biodiversity in the earth and the main outcome was that maybe in the next 10 years it is possible that we lose some 1 million species on earth. It's a possibility. And of course the countries are asked what what are you doing? What What is your work on that? Do you have more protected areas, for example? Do you have more concepts of integrating protected areas with development areas. So, because biodiversity is not only, does not only exist in the protected areas, also in agricultural land, there's a lot of biodiversity. When you see, for example, here in the Isle of Man, the, the farmland, is, uh, the, the fields are surrounded by hedges. In these hedges, you have an enormous variety, a richness of biodiversity. So keeping that is keeping also in agriculturally used land biodiversity. You have it in the city. You have it in the areas surrounding the cities, the peri-urban areas. Only talking about terrestrial biodiversity. You have the marine biodiversity. You have here around the island very well protected areas, but also used areas for fisheries. So it's a way also to see in your territorial waters, how to manage this best. Uh, what are the best fishing practices that you keep, of course, your fishing capacity, income also, of course, but also protect biodiversity in the waters, and the deep waters, but also on the coastal lines. So, um, yeah, you heard about climate change, raising temperatures, raising sea level. Um, we don't really know where, the, where all this will go to. We know that changes happen. I think nothing is more stable than change, so this will continue. We have to monitor that, we have to see what are the changes, what are the impacts. And again, I think bias for reserves is an excellent tool to monitor that and to see in some given areas around the world what happens and then make some provisions, have some ideas, what could be done, explain to the people living in that area what's, what's happening, what they can do, but also explain and maybe motivate uh, the responsible people, the politicians, what should be, what could be the measures well, to mitigate this impact. Obviously, for the Isle of Man included within this network, it, it presents itself with a really unique position because, of course, it's the first ever nation incorporated mm -hmm. within a biosphere. Is there then an expectation on the Isle of Man within, within the programme or is there, is there no pressure at all? Is it purely sort of as an observatory point mm -hmm. of view? Well, just let me explain some statistics, some figures. Uh, we had two weeks ago the International Coordination Council of the Man the Biosphere Programme and they decide about the politics of the programme. It's not us, UNESCO is the Secretariat. So uh, they incorporate new sites uh, and right now in the network we have 701 sites in 124 countries of the world, including 21 Transboundary biosphere reserves. This is also very important. There is also political part into that. Many of these sites are coastal sites or island sites, part of islands or entire islands, like Isle of Man. And when I say island, is not only the terrestrial island; it's also the marine part, and this is very important. 
because whatever we do on the land, it will have an impact on the sea. So being part of this network is, of course, a sort of moral contract with UN, because we are a UN agency. And um, so if a government thinks that this um, concept is good, it's a moral contract that they have with UN uh, to have a good protection of the protected areas, to see uh, have an environmentally friendly development, but also an economically viable development. All our activities must have an economical sustainability. Um, we cannot always pay something. It, it must keep itself. This is very important. So a bias reserve is not a new set of restrictions for the people. The restrictions that exist already have been established. It's, it's a way of thinking, it's a way of managing a society without new restrictions, but having more consciousness, what is really environmentally friendly. For example, using, let's say, more biological agriculture. This increases the value of the products. This hopefully takes out a lot of use of pesticides, so increases the quality of food, which may eventually also increase the income. Uh, it is also a management of um, the areas. Where do you have your construction areas, where you have your protected areas, where you have a sort of buffer zone. So it's a sort of help of determination how to manage a society a given part, in this, in this case here the entire island. So I think it's a good tool for the government to see how to manage the island. Next point is also um, there are several or many islands on the world. The entire, like Isle of Man, biosphere reserves have autonomous governments, also uh, sort of independent governments. So there's a lot of knowledge out there. So by being part of this network, you can benefit from this information. But benefit is not that you only get something, you, you can also give something. Also, I think other sides should benefit from the experiences you make here. So it's a give and take situation. And I think this is the beauty of the program, that it's, it's, it's a real exchange, exchange of information, but also exchange of people at the political level, at the citizen level, uh, scientific level and now a very new part of the program is also to bring together youth. Uh, we have MAP Youth Fora where we bring together the youth of the world coming from Biosphere Reserve. This is relatively new but I think it's, it's a very prominent part for the future. Of course, the environmental issue has pretty much captured the imagination of a lot of young people. We're seeing mm -hmm. uh, students taking days off school and protesting yep. what they mm -hmm. say is lack of action to, to climate change. So mm -hmm. including them in that program, would you think that would help harness that, that energy and help channel into, into conservation? Right. Well, first of all, I think they should, in spite of all this, they should not take day out of school. They should go to school. Because And then if you have some um, uh, manifestations, they can do it on the weekend. <laughs> because school is important. Uh, school is uh, really the knowledge and it's important. Also, you can do this in the school. You can, for example, discuss with your teachers. Uh, you can discuss with your classmates. It's, it's a joint, it's a community work. It's very important that they really take knowledge about what's going on and get engaged. I think the term is really get engaged. Uh, one can get engaged in very different ways. Be elected as a political member of the House of Keys or you can get engaged in uh, NGOs or you can have some citizens initiatives but you simply can also participate in well our children for example did that in, in activities like cleaning a forest, cleaning a beach or helping society by providing some voluntary work. And I think this is important to get consciousness in which world we are living. What can we do? How can we all together better manage the society? Changing habits, for example, avoid the use of single-use plastics. Come back to multiple-use devices, let's say it that way, 
Uh, I think this is a very important point. Water management is a very important point. It's something also using and reusing a lot more clothing, not just buying cheap clothes and throw away, keeping it, you know, repairing it. Whatever you can, of course, recycle all the solid waste, for example. You can put everything in one waste bin and then it becomes unusable. Or you can really recycle, you can, you can separate it. This has to be done with the authorities. So you can ask, for example, the authorities, we want to have three, four, five different waste bins where we can separate. Going back to the idea of the Isle of Man being um, the first biosphere nation, mm -hmm. how does that status, or how would you like to see that status impact mindsets and culture? How would you th like to see it influence people's way of life because you were talking there about changes to approaching issues such as fashion and and recycling etc etc mm. well first of all it's important that everybody knows it uh, so there is a communication part and i think what we are doing here is a good uh, piece of communication to say that it is important to know about that here is a concept that also the government decided to implement this concept. I think it's a very uh, positive thinking government that you have here that uh, trying to implement this concept on the island. We should never forget it's a tool. It's a tool of helping the management of the island in general. And one side that really you get a conscience of what is the biodiversity, why it should be preserved, uh, what are species, uh, there are many, many species, not just the big species that you see, all those, for example, that live below water, believe in the soil, you don't see them, but they're very important. So how, how all this works together, um, this is an ecosystem, to see the picture, the big picture, you see that this all goes together. Uh, that is not an isolated view. I want to, let's say, to protect uh, the forest or to protect a meadow. It has to be seen as a societal issue. So this is very important. And um, when you have the villages, the cities, how they live, these are places of consumption. When you go to the countryside or to protected areas, there are more areas of production. I'm talking on natural production and a natural uh, consumption of, of nature. So how this is interconnected, for example, water. Uh, water in these areas of the world, uh, you have normally quite sufficient water. But what will happen if we have very dry summers? We are feeling that the climate is changing. Where are we going to? What could be the measures uh, if we have climate change how to protect our water supply. Also, if there is a sea level rise, for example, you can have on an island intrusion of salt water into the aquifers. Uh, when you have wells, you're pumping water, this can become an issue. Maybe not here, but in other countries. This tool of biosphere reserve is exactly that. You have many, many areas all around the world using this tool, so you can have comparable data. What happened there? What happened on another side? What happened in my side? I can compare this. I think this is the advantage. To make this knowledgeable to the people, it's quite important. Because then also um, you can react. You can have the laws, you can have the measures that may be unpopular. But, uh, for example, saving water. No, don't, don't waste water. It may, may become an unpopular message, but if it's needed, it's needed. No? you can communicate better. And this is, I think, where this biosphere reserve, having the entire island, and, and, and not only part of it, can make a real difference. Is that a marker of its success, the fact that it's been communicated and 100% of the population knows about it? A marker of success, mm, this I would leave to the authorities. I mean, this is not for us. Uh, we have an evaluation system it's called periodic review system. All the biosphere reserves undergo every 10 years a uh, sort of monitoring review system, whether they are still working 
as initially initially foreseen and planned. And if they are not, they get this sort of uh, advertisement that they should improve the system. If they cannot, because you have countries that have a war situation or they are quite poor, then we must also from, you, from UNESCO uh, see whether you can get support from other sides. So it's a solidarity also quite important. Because, uh, I mean, here in Europe we are living in very rich countries when you compare this with the world. So I think also it's very important to think about this part of solidarity, that we have to be solidar with other people, share a little bit of our wealth with other people. And I think this is also a good message for the youth when you say how this message passed, for example, in schools. How can we be at a global level very solid with all the peoples of the world? You talk about it being a tool. How open to interpretation is that? Is that purely down for that region, that jurisdiction to interpret themselves? Or is there a sort of set criteria that you expect them to, to adopt? There's a set of criteria, but you can imagine this tool is developed for the entire world. So you can imagine how many cultures, how many different approaches exist in the world. Uh, even on the language, when you use the word environment, some people may think nature, other people may think the environment in this room, other may say the feeling of two people talking to each other. All this you can use with the word environment. I found it very interesting before when you referred to production in a natural way, but you know, because usually when you refer to production on the land, we're referring to food production rather than nature being produced. I thought that was quite mm. an interesting interpretation. Nature produces a lot of goods for us. Um, let's just see the bees. Without bees, we would have hardly no fruits. And bees, are, we think they are just there. But uh, in some parts, they are very threatened. For example, using pesticides, uh, nicotinamide, or, and uh, we must be careful, we must monitor that. Because if we don't have bees, we wouldn't have apples, uh, see, and, <laughs> and many other fruits. So um, nature produces a lot, what we call the ecosystem services, capturing of water in forests, keeping the water in the soil through the rooting system, and then feeding the rivers. This is a clear ecosystem service. When we as a human being use this water, we take it out of a, of a river system, and think that this got given, but uh, there is something behind, and we have to protect this behind in order to have this water, for example, fresh air. Uh, maybe here on the island you have very good fresh air, but on on in other areas, uh, big cities surrounding forests, it's humidifying the air. It's really improving the quality of life. So a part of this ecosystem is improving your quality of life in an urban system. So if you want, for example, to expand the city and you don't have green areas, green spaces, the cities may become unlivable. Um, you have in some big cities in Latin America, I know, for example, a sort of heat islands that produce their own microclimate and sometimes their own thunderstorms in the city. You see, because the city has become so big. So when you try to avoid this and you have green spaces around or in the city, this is an ecosystem service. But we must be aware that this exists. We must also be aware of everything, tourism and leisure. Then when we just go into nature and benefit from this advantage, again, we think it's, it's just there, but we have to protect it. So it's active. What I would say is really active citizenship, not passive citizenship, just benefit and forget about. No, uh, you should know what you have. You should learn really how it functions. And then you can also understand what are the needs to protect it. And, of course, what we always call the sustainable use of natural resources. As a part of that network, just to... Just to paint the picture for us mm. I suppose you mentioned 701 reserves mm -hmm. around around the world so, so who's the Isle of Man 
in and amongst who else is in this network in in terms of regions just to give us a picture because i imagine we're going from quite temperate areas in the irish sea from from where we are at the moment to more arid areas or more mediterranean climes who else is in there yeah all the ecosystems of the world um without exception uh, but only areas where people live because the biosphere reserve is not another hat for protected areas you know there are many many protected areas without inhabitants excellent national parks excellent anywhere any sort of protected areas but the biosphere reserve is this integration of um, people and nature so they're only designated where people live there's only no minimum or maximum size there is one biosphere reserve that goes over 3500 kilometers other ones are very very small islands by far smaller than isle of man in the temperate uh, areas of the world there are many biosphere reserves but there are quite a number also in deserts high mountain small pacific islands caribbean islands there are a good dozen in the amazon tropical forest in all the continents apart antarctica there is no biosphere reserve because by definition there's nobody living there there is no no exception um they are distributed all over the world in these 124 countries that i already mentioned in many many other countries there are projects underway um i know that in africa in the southern cone of africa there are right now five big projects underway starting with the protection of uh big mammal fauna but also the migration routes and how to integrate this with the needs of people it's not just keeping the animals happy i mean we must keep the whole ecosystem working this is important over that 50 years of the of the program are you happy with its progress are you happy with what it's achieved or is it is achieving at the moment and what are its challenges well i am the secretary of this program i took over in september 2017 personally i'm quite happy because we have this sort of indicators are the countries interested in the program because it's not it's not that we say the program is successful the countries must say it and we have every year between 15 and 25 new nominations we have every year modifications mean extensions change of zonation uh so we have a very active network so in that sense yeah i can say we are we are happy the participation of the countries is increasing particularly the part on the on the human on the human side is increasing on the protected area management we are less active because this is more something for the national governments to do i would say in inverted commas they don't need us for that uh, unesco is needed for this integration for getting it into international agreements unesco is the only un agency that can designate sites world heritage sites biosphere reserve geoparks and we hold also the ramsar convention but it's implemented by the ramsar secretariat in gland in that sense uh, yeah we're happy challenges public funding for all these initiatives is going down and uh, our main source of income in the un system is of course the public funding the contribution from the member states so we are engaging more and more with the private sector so i would say these these are the main these are the main challenges uh, right now the figures we have are very promising of course challenges are coming then from the scientific issues i mean from climate change from loss of biodiversity in some areas very strong increase of population this is this is a real challenge in some other areas is a decrease of population so we are frequently asked also in island ecosystems for example our population is decreasing particular young people are leaving the site going to the main city to to have good jobs on good money what what can we do in some central american countries we were also called to see after post conflict situation do you have tools to help us to build a society in a post conflict situation in africa around the lake chat 
right now. We are implementing a big project around the entire Lake Chad with the World Heritage Center and the Intergovernmental Hydrological Program to help to improve the situation, the water situation of the Lake Chad and its surrounding populations. And you heard about a lot of the social unrest in this area, which eventually leads then to migration, to heavy migration. And this affects then again our countries here. So, um, and again, the Biosphere Reserve is a tool for this. We are moving away from more, in the past, operational projects to more capacity building, training. Training of trainers is the word. Uh, when you have sites that have given ecosystems, given societies, to train the people, to train the authorities what to do, how to make it. So to pass the message. If you have an experience in your country and it was successful, how to transmit this experience? Of course, they should not just copy it, but they should get the good message and see how they adapt it in their country. So this is where the program is shifting, I would say. More to capacity building, more to education, more to youth involvement. As a contributor to this network, where do you rank the Isle of Man at, at its current pe period? I mean, it's, it's, it's three... Three years into its designation, yeah. obviously, of course, it's not got its review until 2026. What do you make of, of your research and, and obviously coming to the island, speaking with people, visiting on Timwell Day, of course? Mm. What do you make of its current situation and, and, and the prospects it has in front of it? Yeah. Yeah, first of all, um, I would like to thank the authorities here for having invited me and my wife <laughs> <laughs> to come to Timwell Day and to see this very impressive... Um, way of uh, ruling the island. I mean, having a parliament for more than a thousand years uh, constantly working, it's, this, is, this is really impressive. Uh, um, and have also a good uh, democratic tradition. Here, the rights to vote for women were established by far before UK, for example. And uh, so um, I think this, this island is quite in advance in, in many aspects. Concerning the biosphere reserve, I would call it, of course, a young biosphere reserve, three years. Um, well, it should have taken certainly two or three years to get it done. Uh, the nomination process uh, takes some time. It's a participatory process. It's not something, it should not be a decree by the government. It is a community approach or what we call bottom-up. Now, it has to work. I mean, it has to be established people have to be aware people have to be sensitized and to see how they can contribute also the term biosphere reserve is sometimes misleading like a piece of the biosphere reserved for other purposes it is not it is it is really an integrative approach um, that humans and nature are one and then work together so uh, I would give some time here to see how with the civil society, with the government, but also with the visitors that are coming, and you get a lot of visitors, um, how this works all together, how you get really an, uh, an agreement, how you get um, a better living together, how to use best this tool. Give it, give it some time. Try to establish contacts Another network is a world network of island and coastal biosphere reserve, where the Isle of Man has also become a member now, and participating in these exchanges, uh, because these are really similar ecosystems. And when you have an island uh, biosphere reserve here, or in the Mediterranean, or in the Indian Ocean, or in the Pacific, your problems are quite similar. Uh, your weather conditions may be different and your ecosystem conditions different, but in a way how an island society works is very similar. So you can, let's say, uh, narrow down your way of cooperation because this is, this is a sort of common mindset. This, this makes life easier when you're having a problem and you're looking for a solution. You could immediately ask five or ten people from similar situations, say, hey, how, how have you done that? And you may get some, some good advice. This is what is really a network doing. 
but also you feed the network. You give some advice back. You say, but we have done this and that, so you may wish to to use that. Just a little example, um, uh, energy. Energy is on an island an issue. How to generate energy, electricity. Wind energy um, and generated by, by water if, if, if you have, or fossil, fossil fuels. But with wind energy, for example, you could create a sort of sustainable transport system with electricity. Um, car sharing. Does any individual have his own car? Is this needed? Or can you not have carpools where you have a car sharing? When you don't need a car every day, do you need really your own car? Or if you hire a car for one hour or for one day, would this not be sufficient? But this is, of course, something that you cannot do individually. This is a societal way of And thing. it's not something that can happen overnight either. It's, exactly. it's, a, it's a cultural shift that I suppose will, will yeah. take time. Also, the way how you drive an uh, electric car is different from driving it atomic car no so um, so in, in in this sense there, there, there are many many innovations coming uh, I know from some islands and the Mediterranean they're particularly working on that saying from sustainable energy to sustainable transport coming to sustainable tourism and this is a concept very new uh, but as as you say, this uh, this doesn't come overnight. I mean, there you need really some time. You need also to bring together technologies from different different countries, different angles. Technology is evolving, is moving forward. Uh, when you see the old batteries uh, with copper and lead, <laughs> and today you have totally other 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 possibilities of storing energy, by far more efficient. And I think we are not at the end of the story. We are we are just beginning this this story. And again, the bias reserve could be in this system just the tool to bring this together and to see um, how to get the best ideas out, but under a given concept, not just a loose idea. You have a concept, you have the zonation, for example, and you have also the involvement of the different stakeholders. And this is, I think, the most important point. That was Miguel Klusener-Gertz there, the director of the Division of Ecological and Earth Sciences of UNESCO and the secretary of the Man and the Biosphere programme. He was speaking to Aaron Ibanez. You've been listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. Thanks for listening. Take care.